This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. Welcome to our final podcast episode of the year. We've had a massive year on the show. We've had some of our best guests ever. Uh, our audience has increased uh, a ridiculous amount. So to all our listeners out there, thank you very much for listening all year. We are glad that we seem to be bringing you content that you enjoy and a lot of you keep coming back. Uh, every year at this time, we like to do a final episode where we review the year and give our 12 best lessons of the year coming into Christmas, 12 days of Christmas, of course, we want to give our best uh, 12 lessons of the year. And it's a podcast we love doing because we get to summarize uh, some of the key things that really stood out, some of the key themes, some of the key learnings, some of the key lessons, the key uh, things we we spotted and, and summarize it in one big episode. And we learned a lot this year. As I said, we had some unbelievable guests and uh, we could talk about all of them in detail, but we've got a massive episode to get through. We're going to summarize our 12 best lessons of 2021. Uh, firstly, Dad, welcome to the episode and we're going to do our final gratitudes of the year. So, what are you grateful for this year? Well, one of the things that I suppose my dad drummed into me was the importance of family and uh, he was a big believer in getting together and uh, just celebrating Christmas together and, you know, I was one of five children so we were pretty much spread out. Um, sometimes people were overseas, but you know the big thing was you had to go to to their home uh, Christmas Eve and stay the night and have Christmas Day, and that was something we did for forever. Um, so I used to love that, and I tried to do the same with you guys. Um, the important, you know, you understand the importance it is to me to to get together and to, to my wife, obviously, um, and. I'm so rapt that uh, you know we have Liam and Lani, our eldest son, uh, who live in the Sunshine Coast. They're, they're going to be able to, with the borders opening up, come down for Christmas, which is going to be fantastic. So getting family together, I'm absolutely grateful for and looking forward to it enormously. To I think we've seen our granddaughter once in, she's now 14 months, um, which is pretty horrible thing. I, th I think that's one of the downsides of uh, COVID where you just, you know, you're missing out on chunks of... Um, yeah, your grandchildren, children's lives, and everybody around the world had a similar experience. And uh, I'm not the only one who's done that, uh, but but this is exciting to have them possibly come down and spend a week or two with us. It'll be great. Absolutely. Yeah, my gratitude is on similar theme. Uh, basically, I was watching a presentation recently, and uh, the person presenting was talking about the fact that there's a lot of negativity in the world and a lot of negative things we can focus on. And the news is really good at that, at focusing on uh, how much. Um, how much bad there is in the world. And uh, the person was saying that statistically, we actually live in the greatest time possible in human history. Uh, we have uh, the least amount of poverty. Uh, we have the least amount of violence. We have the least amount of war. Um, we have the greatest healthcare available to us uh, on average. Um, and all these things add up. We have the greatest technology. Uh, all these things add up to us living in the greatest period. That's not to trivialize any of the negative things. There is still a lot of poverty. There is still a lot of violence. Uh, there is still war-torn countries. Uh, but just statistically, uh, it is the least amount ever in history, which is a positive thing in itself. And uh, given this year, you know, even the last couple of years with the global pandemic, um, it's the greatest time to be able to have a global pandemic because we are still able to be completely connected uh, to each other. We have so many uh, resources available. You know, this pandemic would have been 
a lot worse even 20 years ago, let alone 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And uh, for me, I'm just um, really simply grateful to be able to live in, in this time and, and in this era. And uh, basically, as long as uh, society, modern society keeps advancing, uh, you continue to live in the greatest time. You know, 100 years ago was actually the greatest time for those people compared to the rest of history. But um, for me, that's what I'm grateful for. Bit of a funny one, but um, I hope it makes sense. No, that's awesome. Um, and you would never think the way the media depicts things that you feel like you're in the worst possible time. Mm. So um, we are definitely being uh, channeled into thinking certain ways by media. So it's it's interesting you've said that. We won't do a what's caught your attention today because we have a massive episode to get through. So let's just get straight stuck into the 12 lessons. The first lesson is a theme that kept coming up all year and uh, it's one that you've really been hammering to a lot of people all year and that is the importance of goal setting. Yes, and um, ironically, the podcast we did when you interviewed me was, I think that was the shining light. There were a few things I would like people to get out of that and um, as difficult those podcasts were to do for me. I, I really wanted people to understand that without goal setting, I, I don't think I would have been motivated and self-determined um, uh, to, to pursue and push and be relentless. And so goal setting um, set me up for my challenge. And, and it can be a massive goal, it can be a minor goal, but as long as you've got something to work towards, I think that is the key. Uh, to to getting out of bed every day. Um, you've got a reason to get out of bed. Uh, you know, you feel like you've got a purpose. And I think that's something that uh, when you've got no goal, you're just waking up and, you know, you've got some sessions to do, but there doesn't seem to be direction. Um, and as I said in the podcast, standing on the start line of a 800 or the beach of a triathlon or start of a grand fondo you know you've worked all your way to this point that's your goal and and you know being satisfied with your preparation is is because of that goal and uh that that is a key uh, factor in in the outcome of of your whole program is having something to work towards having a purpose having a goal having an aim seems so obvious doesn't it but you could probably tell clearly uh the motivated athletes have a very specific goal in mind and the athletes that are coming to you saying i'm just losing track i'm losing motivation i'm losing consistency they probably haven't got a clear uh, objective that they're working towards that's very true and i think uh, the person who says let's just take an example i want to do the brisbane grand fondo or the noosa classic or amy's grand fondo and you go great that's a good goal but the other person who's more motivated says i want to do amy's grand fondo and qualify for the world titles that's a goal in the goal. And someone else says, I want to do the Amy's Grand Fondo and on the first climb, uh, measure my effort so that I can finish the race strong rather than smashing myself and fading. That's a specific goal. You know, how fit do I have to be to be able to do that? Um, I want to beat my PB. You know, just don't make an event the goal. What is it in the event that you're trying to achieve? So it's great that you've had a, 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 an actual event or just I want to be uh, fitter, but you know what? What part of fitness do you want? Uh, you know, I want to be able to do endurance rides and not be suffering as much. I want to be able to ride with my bunch and and be able to keep up when they go hard. You know, have some specific goals that that are going to be more meaningful than just the general. The general is great to start with, but you need, you know, you need to 
to, to work out exactly what is the outcome from that event. This definitely gets into the nuances of uh, goal setting and the old um, SMART analogy, but this S in the SMART analogy for goal stands for specific. And you know, if someone just says, I want to get fitter, well, if you go do one run, technically you're fitter than you were yesterday. And so you've achieved your goal, you know, and that's not, it's not specific enough. And I guess the cliche is that to have a successful goal in mind, uh, you need to know specifically what you want. And I mean, that's that. It seems like it's very simple, but uh, for most people, it's they don't actually have an idea of exactly what they want. And if you first step in good goal setting is know what you want. And if you can do that, then um, you've ticked it off. That's a great summary. Point number two, best lesson number two. Uh, people are still underestimating race execution and executing well in the race. And I think it's just what we say is that no matter how fit you are, if you don't execute well, it can still be a disaster. There's so many examples, and right from beginner to intermediate to elite. And we did use Geraint Thomas as an example in the professional levels, and you can't get fitter people than the professionals. So it's a great example for us mere mortals, age groupers, beginners or hacks, whatever we want to call ourselves, (laughs) um, that if the professionals get the execution wrong, the outcome is horrible. Um, And they're the fittest people on the planet. Make no mistake. And the example that he did was that time trial in the Dauphiné, and people might remember that we talked about this on the podcast, and he was something like 18 or 28 seconds ahead of the field at the halfway mark and ended up finishing eighth or ninth. Um, And the rest of the field were all bunched at, you know, five seconds, four seconds, three seconds, two seconds apart, yet Garant Thomas was 25 seconds ahead. So he clearly was on a great day or he'd gone too hard, one of those two outcomes. Anyway, he finished eighth. and I think he finished 20-something seconds behind the field, which is like a 48-second turnaround. Mm-hmm. And he, he really was angry at himself um, because he just said, I absolutely stuffed that up. Um, I went too hard, got ahead of myself, and paid the, the biggest consequence, which was you know, finishing out of the top three, mm-hmm. um, losing in the Dauphiné, losing 20 seconds to his competitors or 40 seconds to his competitors, um, which he had to get back somewhere else in the, in the uh, tour. Mm-hmm. And ironically, he was, he thought, in the best form of his life. And it proved it because the next day, he actually won the next stage. He attacked with... Katego or something. Yeah, Katego turned, turned the corner and got a jump on them and, and won. And it was just another example of, it doesn't matter how fit you get. If you get on race day and don't have the execution down pat, you'll still have a poor result. Um, and that, you need to think about that sentence. You know, you can train your bum off. And be, do everything right, but get on race day and make a mistake, it will be not the result you want. And so don't underestimate how important the execution part of your program is. The program's got many parts. The, the planning of what your goal is, um, then, then structuring the program and doing all the one percenters we've talked about, you know, hundreds of them, um, and then come to race day actually executing. And, and missing one of those components will not give you the outcome you want. So, so take heed of it. That's why we make the point is that unfortunately a lot of athletes think that because they've done such a good amount of work, which is just a tremendous effort to get to race day feeling so confident in the work you've done, um, that's not enough. And I think that I've done all the work, the race will take care of itself. And that is a saying that we probably say that you've done the work, you don't need to be nervous, but you still have to execute properly. And 
it's almost like self-sabotage, isn't it? Not giving the actual execution the respect it deserves. Mm. And, you know, we just had the uh, Busso Ironman on the weekend and um, we had two athletes, um, one younger, one more experienced, one first time. Um, we had many other other athletes, but we're just p- picking on these two. And, and the outcomes were still fantastic for both of them. Um, first time, finished in under the time he wanted. Um, the other athlete, you know, on the podium, second. Mm-hmm. Great results for both of them. But the execution um, could have been better. Um, and, and you still get the outcome you want, but, you know, you could have got a better outcome mm-hmm. um, had you executed better. So, you know, there's example after example of that. Lesson number three on the theme of um, race execution is uh, having a proper race plan with accurate and up-to-date data. And we've spoken about this before, just having a race plan is you're, you're ahead of 95% of the field. Um, but we do have a lot of our own athletes. Um, we get athletes who send us their race plan first um, and then you can assess it and see because you want them to come up with their own numbers and so they're aware of what they should be doing rather than you kind of spoon-feeding them, you know. but we do still have a lot of athletes come with completely inaccurate data to what they can or what their ability is. It's a, a great lesson in, for me, getting the athletes, if, if I force the athlete to come up with a plan rather than me just giving them, they, they're not as invested. If they have to actually research, how am I coming to this data? How, how am I coming to write down that I think I can ride between 200 and 220 watts for six hours 20 where did i get that information from and i want that to i want to see that i want to see where they've extracted from their historical data so that means they have to do work they have to actually prepare prepare by looking at their history their most relevant and recent history will give them a starting point their experience in training sessions their experience in um, some uh, brick mock sessions double bricks or or some previous races will give them ex- examples of what they're capable of doing. And hopefully between that point and now, they've improved in many areas. But actually understanding and doing the research will give them an unbelievably clear picture of where they're at. Rather than just saying, these are the ranges I want to ride to, this is the pace I want to run to, and leaving it. That, that's not good enough in my, my opinion. You need to come up with the actual research. It's almost like writing a novel and then uh, at the end, at the end of the novel, you have to um, give acknowledgement to where you found your sources. Referencing, referencing. So this is this is exa- an example of doing a little bit more work and having to explain your reasons why you are so much more invested. Well, in the middle of the race, you'll be going, "Yep, yeah, this is perfect. I, I'm doing exactly what I know I should be doing." If I give you the data, the numbers. Maybe you'll take it in, maybe you won't. Um, it's like glazed eyes sometimes when I, I know they're not listening. Um, so I want them to come up with it and I'll say, well, yes, you've, you've got all the, the research right, but this particular race is faster than any other race. There's more people in this race. So the possibility is you could ride lower power and still have a higher speed. So you need to take that into consideration. It normally gets hot there. So you might have to be taking that into consideration. And these are things that the raw data is not taking into consideration. The course might be extremely hilly. It might be slow, you know, cold and wet. Mm-hmm. So, so the race plan has more than just the data. It has 
what are the conditions of the race? And so these are really good examples of how then you can have a discussion with your coach about this is what I think I should happen and then the coach can go, look, take this into, into consideration, um, you know, and give his ideas of what he thinks is right about your plan or what he thinks you need to actually um, uh, think about more. And if, in, you know, also your history. Have you done 15 Ironmans? Have you done five? Mm-hmm. Is this your first one? You know, that conversation for me was completely different for the two athletes that I coached for Busso last week as an example. One was brand new and one had done heaps. Mm-hmm. So the conversation was totally around the new person to be conservative. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you've never experienced this before in a race. You've done all the training, but, but be conservative. Be more conservative than you think you need to be. Whereas the other guy had done 15, you know, you know and you've been there. You know, sit on that line. Sit on the fence of, you know, pushing yourself for a PB and, and two completely conversa- different conversations. So, I mean, that's why we're talking about this. We've just hammered home the uh, importance of the actual execution. You can only execute well if you've got a proper race plan and that race plan needs to be based on sound data plus a thorough conversation uh, about, you know, the conditions of the race and how that data will be applied. And then the last point about that is, um, and firstly, before I go to the next point, um, this applies not just to Ironman. I mean, Ironman is where it's probably the most crucial because you've got the biggest day ahead of you, but right down to a sprint distance triathlon, you know, you should be having exact numbers to stick to. But that takes us to the next lesson, which is attempting any endurance event uh, without respecting nutrition or with new nutrition on race day, which is just suicide. And, and I think it rates equally with um, your, um, your race plan and your execution. Especially with the 70.3 and Ironman. Yeah, and look, if you're doing a sprint, I, I think the nutrition has some role. If you've, if you've not eaten well a few days before and you might, might be dehydrated, you could end up cramping in a sprint because it's a high-intensity activity. So it still will play a role, but um, for the actual uh, event in an endurance race, the nutrition is as important as your execution. There's no doubt in my mind. Mm-hmm. If, if, the, if you do all the fitness work that you're supposed to, your execution is perfect. You do nothing wrong on race day, yet you don't succeed because you ran out of fuel. It can be that simple. It can be catastrophic. And, and don't underestimate how important the fueling is. And people are sick of me saying this to them. If you get a brand new car, if you don't put petrol in it, it doesn't matter how, how everything works perfectly, it won't go. Mm. If you're fit and have a great race execution, if you don't have fuel, you won't go any further. You will come to a grinding halt at some stage where you have to walk. And yet you spend the next hour trying to fill your body with some sort of fuel to get you to keep, keep moving to the finish. And if you think that that's not important, then you are going to be heading for a big lesson in, in uh, not respecting the, the role that nutrition plays in an endurance event. I don't care whether it's a Grand Fondo Peaks, Ironman 70.3, there's just so many examples of how nutrition is the thing that people t- paid no respect to. They trained the house down. Their execution plan was perfect. They actually actually executed until they ran out of fuel mm-hmm. and they couldn't execute at all. Mm-hmm. And their fitness was of no value to them whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, res- the respecting it thing is huge. I mean, you see so many people 
think about the nutrition two weeks out or even a month out. And it's way too late. You know, don't, you don't start training a month out from the event. You, know, you, you should start training your nutrition six months out, right? Yeah, practicing what you're going to do on race day is the key. And, and look, I've still had athletes who are making changes two weeks out, which is not ideal, uh, but at least, it's, at least they've actually been practicing. Um, and, and, you know, the outcome's going to be better. Yeah. Probably, this is a subtopic and we won't go into it. It's a different rabbit hole, but it probably comes back to uh, what we talk about in terms of training for the event. And one thing we don't see in training programs enough is doing six-hour rides like you would a nine-man. So, you can't possibly practice your nutrition in a six-hour ride if you're not doing it it. in your program. Yep. The next three lessons, uh, we've picked out kind of the key uh, key lesson for each discipline, swimming, riding, and running. So, we're going to go through lesson five. The key for swimming that we really have hammered home this year is... It's a no-brainer. And swimming is a skill with fitness. It's a skill first and foremost. So, you can be as fit as you like. If you don't pay attention to your technique, you'll stay the same swimmer. You'll be very fit at that pace, but you won't swim any faster. So take time away from your intervals, and Joe Friel put this beautifully in his podcast. He wouldn't allow his athletes to do any intervals if they couldn't swim 130 per 100 or faster, which I found fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so, so with that information, I've actually implemented that into my own program, which we've mentioned on the podcast, and I think that that is the one game change that you can do as a swimmer is spend time doing the drills. And there are... Many, many drills that you can do that are going to help you along the way. And, you know, we've interviewed Brenton from Effortless Swimming, and he's got 60 drills that you could do. You know, you need to do your research. You need to go and find out about this, and you need to start practicing these drills ahead of your intervals. And you will, you will find it's absolute game changer. The key for riding, we basically summarize it as there's – Three key sessions that just keep standing out. And if basically if you had a program based around these three sessions, you will improve as a rider. Yep. It seems so simple and that's what it's meant to be. Um, out of the seven days, if you choose to ride four days or if you choose to ride three days, you need to do two high-intensity sessions and one endurance ride. So zone two and lots of threshold and VO2. So threshold is zone four. 96 to 107 percent around that range, give and take. Some depending books, on the athlete. Some it? books give you different numbers, but that is the range you need to be. And and the VO2 needs to be 110 percent or more of your FTP. So those two sessions are key. And the endurance ride in zone two, and the longer and and hillier and more uh, strength based you do your endurance rides just like we've emphasized, we're going to talk about in running. But those three sessions, that's probably the, the minimum requirement. And anything you can do on top of that, um, that needs to be without intensity and without endurance. It needs to be basically in that zone to feel where we're doing 20% of our training with intensity and 80% with aerobic fitness as our goal. And that's how to improve as a rider. And then that, that, a caveat to that is, you know, for example, in uh, a time trial instance, when we get to the race ready phase, we inc- include a really key session like the, uh, the sub-threshold race ready session. And that's a little bit different, but we won't go into that. We're just talking about how to improve yep. as a rider. Is these- it, Generally, that if, you, if someone's asking me, I want to get better mm-hmm. on the bike, what are the key things I should be doing? I don't have much time or I have a lot of time. Um, I would say, yep, you've got to do two intensity sessions and one endurance. That's your, that's your 
uh, Bible. Absolutely. Speaking of strength, the key for running. Without doubt, um, this is – I'm almost cocky now as a <laughs> running coach, but I shouldn't be. It's dangerous. Because yeah. you never should get ahead of yourself. And there are also issues with, with what we, we really push in our program, which is doing a lot of strength work in hills. Um, I'm a big believer in it, but you can actually get injured doing a lot of it. Um, and how do you get injured doing it? Well, it does put a lot of strain on your Achilles and calves. Um, and if you're not strong enough to do that in the first place, then before you go and run some hills, you need to actually build a good stable uh, skeletal system and muscular system that's actually going to withstand the hill running up and the hill running down. So you need to allow your body to progress in this. You just don't go out and run two-hour endurance run in the hills if you've been spending the last two years running on the flat. That's Mm -hmm. a really bad idea. Mm -hmm. But the results we've been getting from guys doing very little interval training and really concentrating on hill not just up, but hill down, and endurance using hills as well. So specific hill repeats and specific endurance running with hills. Um, the improvement in, in shorter 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, it's, it's almost close to 100%. There's very few people who haven't improved. The correlation among our athletes between this yeah, hill and strength training and improved PBs just can't be denied. It's just not one thing, though. There's a whole lot of other things that go with it. But, you know, having this in your program, um, and you can't do it for a whole year. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have periods where you're doing other things. But, but that, that forms the basis that sets you up for, the, for your year. Really good point. Next lesson of our 12 best lessons of the year is uh, not repeating the same mistakes. This is just a bit of a general one, but we just felt like that this had to be said this year and it seems to be coming up a bit. As uh, the saying goes, the definition of insanity is repeating the same mistake and expecting a different result. So if you're a person who goes into, let's just use a marathon or a 10K or even a triathlon, if you go in and you run too hard at the start and fade at the finish and end up not beating your your PB, and then the next race you go, I'm going to train harder, I'm going to do everything right, I'm going to get to the next race and I'm going to beat my PB, and then you start too hard again, and fade again. That is what we're talking about. Not learning from your mistakes. Expecting, you know, for some reason it to be okay to not think about why am I not improving and it could be down to just execution. So repeating the same mistakes is more than likely to be doing too much hard training, not enough hard training, poor execution, rubbish nutrition, not enough strength, It could be any of those things. And I'm not just picking on the one thing, which is execution, which is the easiest example to give. Which is the most common mistake. It is the most common mistake people make when they race. But there are other things that contribute to it. You know, I didn't have a good race. I go back and I keep doing the same training. I didn't have a good race because I wasn't fit. Go back and do the same training. That's a mistake. I didn't have a good race because I executed poorly. Going back and doing the same training is not a mistake. So they're two different examples of, of... what caused the outcome in the first place. So you have to identify that before you can actually fix it. I guess it's one of your biggest frustrations is to see an athlete stuff up the race execution, for example, have a conversation about it, and then it happens again. And say, so what, did, did the conversation just mean nothing? What, what, what happened? <laughs> or 
I agree with that one. That's, that's exactly the biggest conversation I have. But the other one is, I don't know what happened to me. Mm. I thought I raced really well. And they haven't even looked at the post-race analysis to find out that they were trying to run four-minute K-pace and their first four were 320, 330, 340, 350. And progressively they went four, four, five, four, ten, four, twenty. I don't know what would happened. Well, have a look, mm. you know, do some research, find out what happened. If you don't, if you don't actually know what happened, how are you going to do anything but repeat that mistake again next time? And I guess it's uh, the opposite as a coach. It's your proudest when someone's made a mistake previously and then the next race they fix it and then they have a great result because of it and you go, that's exactly what needed to happen. Yeah, it's almost like a game changer in their mind, like a light bulb oh, far out. I didn't trust that, you know, I always thought that I had to go harder so that when I got tired, I was always ahead of, ahead of my time. Well, it just doesn't work like that. It, it never has and never will. There are very few people or examples in the world of elite athletes who smash out the first bit and come home strong and still get the result they want. But on that note of exactly what you just said, that is lesson number nine for us and how important a post-race analysis is and really making sure that uh, you don't jump to an emotional post-race analysis um, and it's probably best not done straight away, maybe 24, 48 hours later or even later in the week. Uh, but assessing the facts of what happened and being able to see the facts and not just uh, the end result. You know, a lot of people's post-race analysis is, well, this was my time and it was crap. <laughs> you know, but you're, what you're talking about here is, well, how did you get to that time? Because that will give you a better story. That's a, that's a brilliant example of, you know, I've been guilty of the same thing. What just happened? Mm. Why, why did that happen? What extreme disappointment. It's, it's happened to me many times. Mm. And, and I've learned that, I, I just have to look at the data. I'll just say to myself, just get over it. That's what's happened. Wait till I've looked at the data before I can actually analyze properly what just happened so I can fix it. And I kind of summarized that a little bit before in, you know, not repeating the same mistakes. So it's, it's a similar thing, but, but it's the post-race analysis. Without it, you're not going to learn. And I think I've learned more about, uh, you know, in the race you learn shitloads about what's happening to yourself. You know, halfway through a race, if it's not going well, I know that I've either upset the uh, execution or I haven't prepared well enough mm -hmm. for the requirements of the race. I didn't do enough hills. Uh, I didn't do enough speed work. I didn't do enough VO2. I can see it in the middle of the race when all of a sudden I'm getting left behind or getting dropped or not responding. These are examples in my own mind when I'm actually in the event going, I'm doing the post-race analysis already, in the middle of the event going, right. I'm going to be better prepared. So that's an example. But So the post-race analysis can be during the event because, um, you know, what your, your goals were are gone. Um, and, you know, we've talked about that a lot too. You know, even though the goals are gone, still limit your losses so you can get a good outcome so that, you know, mentally you are tough enough to keep going mm -hmm. to the finish. Um, and that's, a, that's a great, a great uh, lesson to learn as well. But the post-race analysis it shows you stuff that you, you might not have even thought of that was happening. Um, examples would be on a, uh, a time trial course that's really undulating and all of a sudden you see eight spikes that are 50% over where you should have been but you didn't realise mm -hmm. and that's affected your fatigue enormously which has mm -hmm. you know, slowed you down eventually, caused you to not be able to, it's not that you weren't fit enough, it's just that you, you did too many hard bits, you know, burnt too many matches. So they're things that, oh, well, that makes sense, I don't have to, oh, I do that next time, I'll be more even in my power. So that's an example of really getting some detailed data. 
Oh, the obvious one is seeing what your, your power is at the start compared at the end. If it fades, then that's a, an obvious mistake. Um, not understanding how the weather affected your heart rate, which, which, you know, if it's 35 degrees or 30 degrees at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in the middle of an Ironman, that's going to be different to what the heart rate response is to 9 o'clock in the morning at, in the, at the start of the bike when it's 21. Mm-hmm. You know, the heart rate can cope with that. And maybe you haven't trained in, in the heat, so you're not used to that. So, so you have to actually, if your pace is four-minute K pace at 21 degrees, at 35, your heart rate might be 175 at 21 degrees for four-minute K pace. But at 35 at four-minute K pace, it could be 190. That's unsustainable. You are capable of running four-minute K pace, but your body is, is going to have trouble consistently keeping that going so you have to make decisions about mm. that you can possibly not know that but you'll see that in your the post-race analysis mm. what was my heart rate there mm. oh far out look i didn't i didn't notice that was happening mm. you know and instantly you've got a reason why you couldn't run four minute k pace mm. i didn't realize it got to 32 um so you, you know next time after my post-race analysis next race i'll take more notice of you know what the temperature is um, in the afternoon or in the event that I'm doing and and allow for it to slow down a bit and not just try and keep four-minute K-pace going and eventually run at six-minute K-pace because I've totally blown up because I've been running at my heart rate at zone five. It comes back to the point you made earlier at point number three for us, which was having a proper race plan with accurate and up-to-date data, and, but, but also taking that data into the conditions of the race. And if you don't do that, then these kind of things can happen on race day. But also, your post-race analysis isn't going to be accurate if your original race plan isn't accurate. And that can definitely happen where you may have created a race plan off inaccurate numbers and numbers that you couldn't hold. And then um, when you get to uh, the post-race analysis, you go, well, this is my plan and I stuck to it and you're still missing the data and it's because it was wrong from the start. That's, That's a great point. If, you, if you've set yourself to ride 250 watts to 260 and you actually can't do that, but you didn't know that for some reason, Let's just say that happened, mm-hmm. and your number should be 240 to 250. The whole day, you're going to be getting this negative feedback that you're at 244, 245, and you can't go to 250 mm-hmm. or even 260. So your mindset is, I'm not going very well. And, and having the wrong data, it will give you the wrong uh, mm-hmm. feedback. So, so you'll come to the end of the event going, that was crap. I didn't ride the way I wanted to, but it's based on incorrect information. And, and the next point is, we just did this in the coaching call. The event is scheduled for 90K and you happen to have a, an event that only does 88K or 92K and you're basing your data on time. Last time I did 220, two hours 20 for 90K. This time I did 226. But when I go in and have a look at the actual distance of the race, it was tw- 92 kilometers mm. or 93 kilometers. Which is frustrating. <laughs> which in actual fact, you rode better than mm. the 220 because that was 90K. Mm. Yeah, and that's why you should be looking at average speed, average power, the distance. All these things in the post-race analysis are going to give you a more accurate uh, summary of how you went. And I was able to point that out in our coaching call that the particular race, it was to do with distance. The time was... Uh, was actually faster, but the reason why it wasn't because the distance was low, it was 88K. 
um, and the average speed was almost identical to the previous race. So the disappointment of I didn't ride very well, you know, well, that's actually not true. And, and therefore, you need to, your post-race analysis has to be accurate. Yeah. And, I mean, another example in that is, let's say that, you know, your plan was wrong because you tried to ride at 250 watts, you were supposed to be riding at 240. You may get through holding a 250 uh, for the bike, but you can't run because you're just so exhausted. And you, so you, in the post-race analysis, you might think, I rode fine, but I couldn't run for some reason. And that's because you didn't know you were riding, you were riding too you hard. Actually, you actually didn't ride fine. You were riding way above, and it's never going to be able to be a good run from that, from that scenario. One last point on this as well, and this is where um, having the skill of the post-race analysis kind of comes into it because you need to know how to do all this and what to look for. And that's where having a coach being able to walk through it with you really helps and because you might not know what to look for yourself, which is why you get the post-race analysis wrong. But you know, we've spoken a little bit before, and this is a bit more advanced data on how you got the actual power. So let's say you were trying to aim, trying to hold 200 watts for the ride and let's say you got to the end of the ride and you held 200 watts. The story of how you got there is, is so different and we look at normalized power and we look at variability index. We won't go into it too much, but Basically, uh, variability index is uh, almost how different your normalized power is to your, aver- to your average power. To put it in layman's terms, uh, it's how close did you ride to 200 watts for the whole ride and how many times did you go way over or way under. And so, if you've ridden really erratically, um, your variability index might be um, 1.2 or something or 1.3 or 1.05. Whereas, if you've, ri- if you've ridden really close to 200 watts the entire ride, aka you've ridden really smoothly, your variability index would be 1.00. And so an athlete that's executed well in a post-race analysis, say I rode 200 watts, tick, I stuck to my plan, and my variability index was 1.00, which means I rode smoothly. Another athlete, I rode 200 watts, tick, stuck to the plan, but my variability index was 1.15, which means I was riding way above and way below. And so again, the result is you're exhausted off the bike because you've been surging and not surging and surging. And that's the kind of thing that is hard to look for if you don't know what to look for, but shows the importance of the post-race analysis. Yeah, you, what you're talking about is, is definitely advanced. And look, in that scenario, you, you could also, um, you know, be totally perplexed as, as I, I rode 200 bots. I don't know what happened. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, the next step on that could be that the course is very undulating, so it's okay to have a variability of 1.05. Mm-hmm. But you better have trained on that course yep. to make sure that you can run off the bike yep. having a variability of 1.05 yep. and normalize power of way above your average power. Mm-hmm. But we still wouldn't be recommending that in a triathlon. But there are some time trial events for cyclists. And, you know, the, the national time trial, the Australian title, is at Fed Uni. And it has got a climb that goes for two minutes that's up to 18%. Yep. So your variability is going to be massively different. You yep. normalize and your average are, nearly 10 or 11 watts different yep. because of the scenario of that course. And you need to have a big variability mm-hmm. because that's the only way to ride well To ride well, because the biggest gains are on the slowest part of the course yep. and you don't have to run. So there's different scenarios exactly. that can yep. be taken into consideration. There are some courses where pancake flat, you need to be doing just that, where it's undulating. You need to be changing your whole style of time trialing. So we're not saying all this to confuse you. We're saying this to really highlight how important this is and how overlooked From it can be. From one piece of data, you can get six different scenarios. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Our last few points for the year, point number 10. Uh, this was from Steve Wanagetti, and we just both thought this was absolutely brilliant. Uh, you don't need variety for variety's sake. 
You don't need to change things up in your program uh, just to change it up. You know, often uh, we get afraid of, uh, you know, creating the same programs over and over because, you know, the athlete might get a bit bored or something. But why fix something if it's the best type of program you can be doing? You know, why would you do something different if these are the best sessions you should be doing? It's such a great sentence, isn't it? Um, For variety's sake. Mm. You know, Monos Fartlek, you know, he's been doing that for, I don't know how old he is now, but it's got to be 40 years. And and he doesn't do it exactly the same every week. There's variations of it when he's coming to race period, when he's in base period. But but that is one session that it's his go-to session. And, and, you know, our threshold session or our VO2 session, there are many different ways that I can get the athlete to do the same outcome. But I'm changing it for variety's sake mm-hmm. just to keep people motivated. But the motivated athlete doesn't need that. You know, the, the sessions that work need to stay in the program. And that is the message that he was saying, whether it take, you do that for 40 years or you do it for four minutes or four weeks, that is the important thing. The one sessions that work, and we already know what they are, as long as they're at the right time of the year in terms of the preparation for your race, um, you know, consistently doing a similar program, people would say, well, that's just boring. But, but if, it, if it makes you the Olympic champion or the, the Commonwealth Games champion or your local club champion, I'm sure there are. That's it's a, a hard thing to say. There are, you know, just because you win doesn't mean it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. There are things you can do to improve yourself to be better than you are. But you know w- what you know works for you. You need to keep that formula, um, and and have some variations in it if you want to, depending on the stages of the year of the preparation you're at. But but don't think that your program has to be varied just because it has to be varied. Perfect. Lesson number 11, uh, embracing technology to your advantage. And we had the perfect person this year, didn't we? Shane Miller, the absolute guru of te- technology and he's across every aspect of it and has been a great rider in himself. Um, so he's, he's walked the walk, so he's very qualified to talk the talk, I thought. And, and the examples we've got of, you know, I, I still shudder when I see triathletes with their whiz-bang triathlon watch on their arm that's telling them their swim, their ride, and their run information. And when you're on the bike and you're in the TT position, your wristwatch is facing away from your face. So if you're trying to ride to power and you don't have a legitimate bike power meter, bike computer on your bike that reads power, you're possibly going to have the opportunity to crash into someone when you're trying to turn your wrist to see what your actual data is and you're probably more likely not to keep looking at it because it's such an effort to Mm. move your hand and the minute I move my hand I stop pedaling with the same pressure on the pedals it's like going through a roundabout you know that's how much what what is you'll drop every time you look at your you know it's near impossible to do two things at once when you're concentrating on what is the power I'm riding at now and when you look at it you'll start easing up on the pressure so the minute you look at it, it's dropped anyway. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of having technology, but it's not actually, you know, in being used the right way. Yep. Um, so there's thousands of other things that we've identified in our technological advances. They've just kept popping up all year. Yeah. You know, we could rattle through, you know, there's millions of them, you know, <laughs> running to pace, running to heart rate, riding to power, um, uh, you know, cadence. Form um, goggles. Yeah, form goggles, having uh, the average 
pace that you're swimming at. Um, Everything to do with the Swift and the indoor trainer. Yeah, yep. Yeah, uh, smart trainers. Yep. Um, uh, heart rate monitors, um, blood lactate measuring uh, facilities, um, testing in the lab, VO2 testing. There's so many advances that you can uh, get a hold of that will make you a better athlete. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, just having the, the Training Peaks app or any app that gives you the ability to read your um, sessions. Um, can't do a post-race analysis. You cannot, you. Do a, <laughs> you cannot do an execution with, you know, you can by feel, yeah. <laughs> but it's pretty much been proven that there's about 10% of the people of the world can, can compete really well to feel um, and the rest of us are going to go too hard and fade. Um, so, so with our technology, we have technology. Don't be putting your head in the sand and refusing to use it. Get, get aligned with it and learn and do your research. It's part of your program. Be prepared. Understand how your Garmin works. Wear all the settings. Mm. Have the right information on your screen, not just put up with the generic one that they give you, mm-hmm. which is another bugbear of mine. Yep. Um, so, so, you know, if you're not willing to, do, to read the instructions on your, your Garmin, for example, then... How informed are you going to be? You don't even know what's on your screen. Yep. Um, so, so technology's there, and it's it's something that it's a great tool. Um, and if you don't use it, you're you're going to get left behind. And I have no doubt that we'll be talking about the running power meter in the next five years. And if you're not even already on a bike power meter, then you're going to be even further left behind with, with the running power meter. Yeah, so it's going to be exciting. And look, some of the guys are already using it. Yep. Um, at, you know. We know the Norwegians are already, yep, so yep. once the Norwegians do things, that's going to be the go-to country yep. from now on because they're, at the moment, the fastest Ironman, you know, world fastest champion, 70.3, 70.3 Olympic champion. Olympic champion. Yeah. So We've got everything. People yeah. do tend to follow people who are successful, yep. and uh, just ironically, we had the head coach <laughs> as our podcast um, uh, main man. So, you know, we've got a lot of the secrets from that. So, you know, and, and he he exudes technology. He's got all, you know, We've seen countless videos of them doing a, a 28K run, taking blood lactate every 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So that's... They, they do 1K reps, take the blood lactate and the 60 yep. seconds rest. That's taking technology to its, to its limit. Mm-hmm. The last lesson of the year, we really wanted to touch on this because it was a bit of a life lesson as well as a training lesson. And that was the podcast we did with... Uh, my cousin Shauna, your your niece, um, where she had a uh, incredible comeback from cancer, and she was an athlete before having cancer, um, and then afterwards she had to start from rock bottom, from absolutely fitness level of zero. And her example of patience was just uh, one of the most incredible examples and analogies I've ever heard about how slow she had to be uh, in her progress, and she would do sessions where she was literally progressing. 40 meters of walking that day you know it was just so um so much slower than any of us could ever um ever imagine doing you know and we all want things now we want to, we want to improve right now and it's a real problem that um we aren't willing to be as patient as she was and that that part of the story was really just incredible and if you haven't heard it go back and listen to that episode um but for me it was uh the the best part about the story was that she got to a 10 kilometer run pb faster than most of our normal athletes do with how slow she was going you know it is the exact analogy um the the fable of the tortoise and the hare you know where um, the hare takes off and sprints out at the start and the tortoise goes at its own pace and the hare uh, the tortoise ends up winning because the hare took a nap and 
that is just a perfect example of what we all do. You know, we all take off at the start, go as hard as we can, and that's great for the first two weeks, but then we end up having two weeks off because we've gone too hard or something happens. And Shauna was the exact hair that just kept going along, but she actually gets to the end result faster. And she was a real life example of getting a 10K PB and being able to run that distance. And she even said it on the episode where all her friends got inspired by her starting from scratch and they all started doing, you know, five kilometer jogs and they just went too hard too early. And none of them end up being able to run, you know, a 10 kilometer, whereas she got there ahead of all of them with how slow she went. So for me, that was just incredible lesson in patience. Yeah, I suppose, um, uh, you know, we push the plan, prepare, perform, the three Ps. Well, for Shauna, I've just written down patience, persistence, perseverance. You know, that's another take on the Ps and she exudes those three. Um, So, you know, to go for a one-minute walk, you know, it's almost laughable, Mm -hmm. but that was how she started. I I was able to walk for a whole minute Mm. and I got 50 metres. And from that day to the, you know, she's still continuing on her journey right now and she's been able to run an hour and a half Mm -hmm. um, at pretty pretty solid race uh, tempo, pace, not race, pace, tempo. Um, But, you know, how patient do you have to be to be able to, tomorrow I'm going to walk for a minute 30 and the next day I'm going to try and walk for two minutes. You know, you've got to have some sort of patience to, to you know, and, and perseverance knowing that, you know, things might not go well. I, you know, I feel really bad, the, the chemo, you know, all the things I have to do with the doctors, it just wasn't possible today. So that's okay. We just missed that day and go to the next day. And I suppose um, the persistence thing is the one thing that she, you know, no matter what roadblocks were put in front of her, she she navigated her way around it, and and you know persistence becomes consistent, and and that's what she was. She was she was so persistent, and and I'm going to get better. And and talk about goal setting, you know, I want to be able to run five k, not fast. I just want to be able to run five k. Um, you know, let's start with one k, mm. and you know her. her one minute became two minutes, became four minutes, became 10 and 20. And all of a sudden she got to run 5K. It took a long time. It, it didn't happen straight away. And I think that's a lesson for everybody. We are too impatient. We, we, are, we are the now generation, and I'm included in that, and technology's caused that, which is good. Um, but we've, we've, I suppose we've lost the art of understanding that things take time. And when people join our group, I say that right at the start, don't expect in four weeks or eight or 16 weeks to be the athlete that you've dreamed of. That's it's most definitely not going to happen. You will start to see improvements, but it won't be in a short journey. It'll, you know, the biggest improvement I've found for the majority, and I'm generalizing here, three years into their program, that seems to be the point where they can almost do no wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, everything changes. And the people listening who are in our program to this, who've been in that on that journey, will agree with that. Um, it doesn't happen in the first short period when I'm taking. I'm talking a year as a short period. You, and don't get me wrong, you get massive improvement in the first year. And it does depend, Jordan, on how, where you came from. Yeah. Yep. If you come from a beginner base, it's outstanding. Uh, we've had examples of a hundred watt improvement, yep. but the base was low. So we're not kidding ourselves here. You know, we've got people who are beginners. Mid packers and elite. Mm-hmm. The elite improvement, it only needs to be 1%, and that's good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas the, the beginner improvement can be up to 100%. Um, so, 
So we've got everything in between, but the point we're making is you have to be willing to go the journey, and that's what Shauna was. She was absolutely committed the goal, and she was committed to the goal and the journey. And if if we can get one message across for the whole year is that the destination, and I've said it a lot, is is you know, the, the main goal, but the journey is more important in my eyes. And And if you can keep that as your focus, it is easier to get up every day because you know where you're going and all you're doing each day is executing the plan to get there. And it might be a big day where you, you take big strides, but it might be a short day where you're doing recovery. Mm-hmm. But each day contributes to the journey, which contributes to you finally arriving at your destination, which is your A race. That's a great way to finish. Uh, thank you very much for listening and thank you for listening all year. It's been a great year of podcasts for us. We've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, if you're not already, follow us on YouTube, Traveller Coaching. We're actually, actually called Train Smarter, Race Faster on YouTube, which is our, our tagline for this podcast, the Get Fast Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Traveller Coaching. Uh, you can also find us. We have a free Facebook group where we post a lot of stuff in there. A lot of people, it's a community where people post questions, get help on certain topics. Uh, and we like to chat to you all in there and help answer questions because we like hearing what you want to know about. So you can just search Traveller Coaching and that group on Facebook. Or if you go to our Instagram, Traveller Coaching, there is a link there to join the free Facebook group. Um, and last thing from us is that if you uh, re- enjoy the podcast, if you've enjoyed them all year, please leave us a review. It really does help. Go and leave us five stars and leave a positive comment. Uh, you can do that on podcast or even on our YouTube channel. And other than that, thank you very much for listening again from all of us here at Trivello, the entire Trivello family. Uh, have a very Merry Christmas and a happy and safe New Year. Anything from you, Dad? To all the listeners out there, um, I really want you to, uh, to make sure that you start your journey today and not wait for the new year. And uh, you're in control of your own destiny, so make sure you, uh, you, you get what you want each day. And uh, that would be the message I want to leave for Christmas. Um, you know, you're in charge, you know, take control. We will have a couple of weeks break over this uh, Christmas New Year period and then our first episode will be uh, probably a week into the new year and we can't wait to bring you bigger and better episodes all of next year. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you in the new year. Mm